Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous Name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority, and one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? There's a couple of beasts in here. Let me talk about the first beast to begin with. Like I said, this rich symbolism draws such powerful mental imagery representing the uh, degree, the extent of how wicked this individual is. And because there are some striking similarities between this beast and the beasts that you can read about, the images you can read about in Daniel 7, some of those similarities are like the the sharing of the characteristics of the ten horns. Uh, The Revelation beast has the characteristics of a lion and a bear and a leopard, and those beasts are found in that vision in Daniel as well. And they have similar power and similar authority, and they all are are said to speak blasphemous words and they wage war against God's people. So because of those similarities, people like to tie this vision in Revelation into what Daniel saw as well. Uh, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, it, it probably very likely does have uh, some connection. Uh, but that's, that's really beside the point. Uh, the Jewish tradition always believed that Rome would arise again as a future empire. Uh, That's been one of the main uh, staples of dispensationalists in looking forward and seeing a a future Roman empire. It's been the subject matter included in the uh, teaching of so many prophecy teachers. Uh, But that, that dates way back farther than than modern-day prophecy teachers. Jews believed that was going to happen as well. Uh, furthermore, they had such a sour experience uh, at the Jewish converts and the, and, the, and the Christians alike had such a sour experience with Nero, that uh, ruthless emperor of Rome who ruled from 54 to 68 AD that whenever he finally died, there was rumors uh, abounding that like conspiracists that would always have rumors and thoughts today about, about uh, modern events, the conspiracy theories back then were Nero's not really dead. 
He's in hiding. He's going to come back and he's going to haunt us. And then those who didn't buy into the he's not really dead theory, like the Elvis theory, he's not really dead, believed that he was going to come back from the dead. And like I said, it was such a traumatic experience with Nero that they had such fear of him that one way or the other, they were afraid Nero was coming back. This ruthless enemy of Christianity, you no doubt have heard some of the things about Nero, but uh, this, this is this, this man that lit Christians on fire as human torches to provide light for his uh, imperial gardens at night and, and other unspeakable, brutal methods of torture. And even at, though at the time of John's vision, Nero was no longer ruling, they feared he was coming back. Consequently, it's easy to see how these early Christians would read this letter to the churches and get down to this part in the 13th chapter about the coming Antichrist. And you know what the first thing they thought of? Is it, uh-huh, Nero's coming back. Because look how wicked the Antichrist is described as being, and their mind goes to the most wicked person they'd ever encountered, Nero. So here, here comes Nero back. And uh, Craig Keener points out that the early traditional belief that Nero returned as Antichrist was so deeply embedded in the culture that the name Nero, in the Armenian language, the name Nero became the equivalent for Antichrist. That's how deeply they feared this and believed this. And furthermore, later emperors of the Roman Empire who proved to be very wicked themselves were also called Neros. Now we've got another Nero on our hands. Like some today might liken the Antichrist to another Hitler, another Pol Pot, another Mao Zedong, or some other ruthless maniac that we're acquainted with in, in our culture in this day and age. Uh, another biblical example uh, to the opposite end of the spectrum would be whenever John the Baptist came along and they said, we've got us another Elijah. So we're accustomed to how people will use figures from the past to represent those that they recognize today. But one thing for sure, at some point in the future, just previous to the second coming of Jesus, somebody is going to rise up that is going to be the Antichrist, symbolized by this hideous, grotesque beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, emphasizing the great power of the beast and the blasphemous names on every head showing the extent to which this is a filthy, nasty, disgusting, wicked person. And the dragon who we've already clearly understood representing Satan himself, the dragon empowering this individual. Now, we've no doubt seen Satan's influence in many different ways. Throughout the history, we read about it, we see it in our culture today, but this is something very special, very unique as an individual coming who is so wicked that the source of his power, the source of his his. Uh, wickedness is directly being piped in to the powers of Satan. He is the puppet of Satan for all he's going to do. And one of the key 
keys to this passage about the beast to help understand uh, that some of the descriptions apply more to the empire than it does to the beast and some of the uh, particulars of the passage apply more to the beast uh, as a person than it does to the empire. And that's why you can kind of make sense out of this. For instance, we don't believe that Antichrist will have seven heads. This is symbolic. Uh, we don't believe that one of the heads of this seven-headed mythical creature is uh, wounded to death and comes back to life, but it's a symbolism for something which probably applies more to the empires, uh, the historical empires, the, uh, the powers that have uh, brought oppression against the people of God throughout history and some of those being more significant than other powers and the wounding of the head, many believe that to be the uh, seeming passing of the Roman Empire, yet the Roman Empire coming back someday into play. So all of those things that uh, people make attempts to try and understand this. Uh, Antichrist will rule from one of those empires. So like I said, the vision points sometimes more to the empire or the empires and sometimes points to the beast himself. But three times in these verses, I want you to notice this. Three times in these verses, the first eight verses, John mentions something that may have passed you by. He mentions the worship of the wicked. In verse 4, we find that the people worship the dragon who will give power to the beast, and they worship the beast himself, and their taunting mantra as they worship him is, who is like the beast and who can wage war against it. And then in verse 8, we're told that all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. So there's this modifying phrase, not necessarily all inhabitants. It does say all inhabitants, but it's, it backs up immediately and says, well, not necessarily all inhabitants, but it qualifies that by saying all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, all the unsaved, all the ungodly, all the rebels. Satan and his beast will become the universal religion of choice for all except those who follow Jesus. Now, there's so much about this passage that outlines the parody Antichrist makes of Christianity. Some have loosely suggested, and I don't want to make too much of that, this out of this, and I don't want you to make too much out of it, but some have loose, loosely suggested that you got the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet forming somewhat of a, a counter-trinity to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I think that's a very loose application. But there are other things here that definitely point out some sort of a parody of the true God and, and uh, the, the true network uh, under God. And that is, uh, we have the ten-horned beast. Now, you might want to contrast that with the seven-horned Lamb that we have just read about in chapter 5, the seven-horned lamb of God. So does the wicked mentality believe that, well, if seven horns is good, ten horns is better. We'll just outdo him. But you've got a lamb versus a beast. 
And uh, the, the worship of the beast contrasts most definitely with the worship of the lamb, which should have been fresh on the minds of the people reading this book straight through. And the resurrection of the fatal head from the fatal wound uh, uh, certainly contrasts with the pure, true, original resurrection of the Lamb after being crucified. And to the amazement of the world, they are totally mesmerized by this resurrection. This is what is coming. There is this head that is mortally wounded, supposedly, but it is comes back to life. So in, in whatever uh, sense that, that uh, has... Uh, an expression of reality I mean because we know it's symbolic well, uh, I don't believe it means that the Antichrist is going to receive a, a wound to the head and that that has been loosely defined and interpreted that uh, as that in times past as a matter of fact I'm old enough to remember the assassination of President John F. Kennedy how many of you remember that how many of you kind of remember exactly where you were when that happened? Uh, I mean, the blood just kind of drained from your face when the announcement came over the television. I was in school. I was in grade school. And our principal came on the intercom and announced to all the, people, the children in the class, uh, attention, everyone, the president of the United States has just been assassinated. And it was just a, a chilling hush that came over the entire school. Well, you know what they begin to make out of that? John F. Kennedy must be the Antichrist because he received a wound to the head and we're expecting him to come back to life. And all this is the conspiracy theorists uh, producing this kind of nonsense. But if, if the uh, wound to the head has to do with an empire that was seemingly defunct and is going to come back to life, then that makes sense. But here's the thing about it is what came back to life that seemed it was dead but came back to life just fascinated the world. They were in awe of it. And because of being so impressed by this resurrection feat, we thought it was gone, but it's back. It caused them to worship the beast. They worshiped him because of the resurrection. Now, they don't have any cause with that kind of a flimsy excuse to be worshiping a beast because of some faux resurrection. We have a resurrection that demands the worship of a Savior that is genuine and powerful. They're just playing around with toys. We've got the real thing. They are so fascinated by this that they break out into this mantra, the one that was supposedly dead and come back to life, the resurrection of the, their hope, all of the hope and pray for, and they got this mantra, who's like the beast? Who can make war with him? I mean, they are thrilled with this beast and who he is and what he can do. That declaration of supremacy is the kind of wording, let me say it again, who's like the beast? Who can make war with him? Now you just change a couple of words there. That declaration of supremacy is the kind that is associated solely with God, solely with the most high, not with mere mortals. We don't say that about your pastor. Who is like our pastor? Because he got a whole bunch like him and so many better than him. <laughs> so it's, it's something that is reserved for supremacy. 
and they are applying this to the Antichrist. Who's like him? Who could defeat him? This is their guy. And he steps on the scene just in time. This unmistakable display of pride and arrogance in these statements. The world thinks, as we look future into this, what is going to happen, the world thinks they have finally found their ultimate leader. They have finally found the one who is in their evaluation, unequaled, unparalleled, unconquerable. This is what they have hoped and dreamed for. This is their secret weapon. An amazing world leader who is anointed and empowered by the power of hell, by Satan himself, the full thrust and force of hell is behind the scheme and the world sees no way this can possibly fail. They've got it all now. This ultimate power structure far surpassing anything wicked men have ever seen, have ever dreamed of, have ever hoped of. For, for the entire history of humankind, they've never seen anything like this, but finally here he is. And the wickedness of this beast practically defies description. He blasphemes the name of God. He does this out of bitter vengeance and hate. I mean, it's one thing just to not believe in God but to go out of your way to blaspheme the name of God as a demonstration of hate and anger that is immeasurable. He's bitterly aggressive in doing everything that is anti-God and anti-everything associated with God. He hates God. He hates God's name. He hates God's people. He hates God's temple. He is insanely enraged by the mere mention of God and the world loves him because he represents everything they feel about God too. This is what they've been wanting. This is what they have longed for. This is what they have hoped for. Somebody to come and scrub this world of every vestige, every trace of God, every reference to God, every sympathizer of God. The world longs to clothe itself in the gross darkness of iniquity and chase away the light. They don't like the light. They love the darkness. We can see those sentiments at work today. It is shaping up to bring this to pass. Even in John's day, when he wrote these words in the first epistle, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, Many antichrists have come. This is how we should know it's the last hour. So you see, it's setting up for what's going to happen. 
the Antichrist may not be walking on earth right now, but I can guarantee you there are many people in the spirit of Antichrist that are already here at work. There are many people that are yielding to the will of Satan who are preparing the way for the coming Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is not only here today, it has been here ever since. Jesus came the first time and he's been working to defy any possibility of Jesus coming a second time. He's been working to poison the population of earth. So when Christ comes, he would do all he can to ensure there would be no faith on earth. Soon after the resurrection, John reminded the Christians that even though Antichrist was destined to soon come, his spirit's already at work here. Now, the closer we get to the arrival of the Antichrist, the more we are going to see this world preparing itself for his appearing. People are going to grow, grow more and more hateful toward God and the things of God and the people of God. And you know these things, but just give, let me give you a couple of examples. Here in the United States, a nation birthed with the comfortable notion that there is a God and he is at the helm and we're under his watchful eye and we've seen the efforts of God-hating people trying to remove that concept and that notion of God from the public arena and from our, uh, our nation. They, they are deeply disturbed that God is referenced in our founding documents. They are deeply offended that scripture is written on monuments in Washington, D.C. They are deeply offended that the Ten Commandments might be posted in a courthouse somewhere and they fought that legal battle to have them removed. They're challenging the practice of sports teams for praying on the field because they don't want any references to God. They're shutting down student-sponsored Bible studies because they don't want any references to God. They're expelling students for wearing Christian-themed shirts to school. There have been cases, multiple cases, of teachers telling some student, you write about your most memorable character, your favorite character in history, but no, you cannot write about Jesus because they're offended by God and things about God. Obviously, one of the more common things is Merry Christmas was, has, has uh, the, the word Christ in it is deeply offensive to this crowd and they want to change it to Happy Holidays. We no longer say, if, if people have their way about it, we no longer are supposed to be saying 2018 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We don't want that. Let's say C.E., Common Era. Can you see the systematic effort in our culture today to get rid of God every place you see him, every reference to him? And it's just starting. It's not over. It's just starting just a few examples of the way people have become obsessed with deleting God from this culture. This is nothing but preparing the way 
for their Lord and their God to come. They hate God and they hate the things of God, but someday this man, empowered, animated by the power of Satan, is going to stand up and he's going to be their poster boy. He's going to stand up and say, I hate God worse than you hate God. Watch me blaspheme his name. I hate his people. I hate his temple. And the world is going to polarize around this man. This is our man. Well, what can he do? Well, he's empowered by the powers of hell. He can do a lot of stuff nobody else in the history of mankind has ever been able to do. And they're going to put the weight of their influence and their support behind this man because finally... They've got that man that is so against God, they're going to get God out of this world and they're going to establish their godless institution and their godless worship and their godless political society and it will belong to them and they will do whatever they want to do without God interfering. This is what they're looking forward to. It's taking shape right before our eyes. And I wonder, are you alarmed? Can't you see what is happening? There's another beast. In contrast with the first beast that comes out of the sea, this beast comes out of the earth. I'm not going to make anything special out of that. It's just a distinction. The first beast arises out of the sea. He looks and a second beast arises out of the earth, which simply at the very basic fundamental level just distinguishes the two beasts. Beyond that, I don't care to get into it. And the second beast comes along and he promotes the first beast. This has commonly been called the false prophet, the second beast. The first beast is abusive and abrasive and caustic and outrageously wicked and in, in, in speech and in deed and the second beast is not like him. He, he, he's got uh, the characteristics of a lamb. So he comes along, he's more of a diplomat. The first beast is just rude and crude and rough and what you see is what you get and he is filthy and he is disgusting and he puts it all on the line and people love him. But the second one got a little more charm and he's more persuasive. He can convince people. He helps woo people into the clutches of the first beast, two horns like a lamb, suggesting his calmer diplomatic approach. He's unquestionably wicked, just more subtle about it. He aggressively promotes worship of the first beast and even fashions this image of the beast and puts it in this temple and orders the people to worship it. And the, the, the beast common referred to as the false prophet is capable of doing miracles to draw and convince people. One of his most notable feats is he makes the image of this beast and he gives the power to this beast to speak. And that really amazes the people. Now, if you can do a few cheap hat tricks, you'll always get a following. And furthermore, he, he reinforces this if you're not convinced by the fact that he can do these magic tricks and make inanimate objects come to life, he backs that up with saying, you will bow down and worship this beast or you will face the penalty of death for refusal. So he's got you. Either you're convinced or you're coerced, but he's got you. 
And the final uh, but most mysterious bit of information is that we are challenged to calculate the number of the beast's name, which comes to 666. How many of you got that figured out yet? I want to... Uh, I want to tap your brain. You got that figured out. You see, most likely when John wrote that and the letter was read to the early churches, they had a better idea of what that meant when he said, let any man that has wisdom calculate the number of the beast. But somehow that has been lost to future generations, and we don't have a clue what that means, except that never let that stop us from having a, a, an opinion. Just because we don't know what we're talking about doesn't mean we ought to act stupid. <laughs> so we've come up with all kinds of things to fit this. And most popularly, it's been efforts to try and somehow convert our alphabet into a numbering system. If it doesn't work by using ABC123, then let's try and go back and convert something into Hebrew and let's use a numbering system associated with it. But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's so much fun, there's no end to how, how we can entertain ourselves endlessly with trying to figure out what it means. Let somebody calculate the letter of this name. For, for instance, uh, some of the candidates that have been calculated have been obviously Nero right up there at the top. John F. Kennedy's been nominated. Henry Kissinger's been nominated. I never did understand that one. Somehow somebody calculated his name with some weird formula that comes up 666. And if you've been around long enough and you've read any of those books or heard any of those, you've heard somebody suggest that somebody's name comes up to 666 and it must be the Antichrist. Now, j just let me illustrate how insane this gets if you'll allow me to. Uh... So hold on to your seats for just a minute. I, I want to demonstrate for you the absurdity of all this speculation. Here's a man that figures that Trump is the Antichrist. Now, I think he's a scoundrel, but scoundrels don't make Antichrists. <laughs> The Trumps own the most expensive building ever purchased in the United States. Guess where it's located? At 666 Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and the street is symbolic of money. Number two, we're not, we, I mean, we've got a, quite a case to build here. The Trumps paid $1.8 billion for the 666 Tower. And, and this is where it really gets fun. And 18 equals 3 times 6, 1.8 billion, see? So 18 is 3 times 6. So there you've got it again. It must be the 666 Tower is held by Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. The Trumps are also in the process of building a $666 million tower. Well, you spend just $1 million more and get off of the suspicious <laughs> $666 million tower at one. Journal Square, according to multiple reports, the height is going to be. Guess how high it's going to be? <laughs> You're way ahead of me. It's going to be 666 feet high. <laughs> uh, according to multiple reports, the famous Trump Tower is 203 meters tall. And 203 meters equals how many feet? <laughs> uh, you catch on quick. And guess where the Trumps live? The 66th floor. 
Now, never mind, it's not the 666 floor. We don't need that. It is just, as long as it's close, it's okay. I have so much fun with this. We're not done yet. In the first year of Trump's presidency, fiscal year 2017, the budget deficit swelled to $666 billion. <laughs> I'm sure it did one day. It probably surpassed it. Donald Trump inherited the grandmother's real estate empire when she died on June 6, 1966. Her name was Elizabeth Christ Trump. <laughs> If that doesn't send chills up and down your spine, then you're like me. It doesn't. <laughs> Donald Trump's in, in, name. Oh, here they, they're going to do the math. Donald Trump's name equates to 666 in Jewish gematria, English gematria, and ASCII computer code. Trump's fear-mongering comments about rapists and drug dealers vaulted him to the top of the polls. When? June 6th. 2015, which is 6 plus 6 plus 1 plus 5, the 15th. I mean, it works. Yeah, I'm telling you, it works. Uh, Trump announced his candidacy for president on, June, president on June 16th, 2015, which was 6 plus 6 plus 1 plus 5, on the Ides of March, and he had 666 delegates. The 2016 election was all Trump all the time, and 2016 equals 666 plus 666 plus 666 plus 6 plus 6 plus 6. And do the math, it does. So there you go. Why need we speculate any further about who the Antichrist is? They've got it nailed down right there. I hope you can see how ridiculous and painful this kind of sensational speculation is, and it goes on all the time. And the fact is, the challenge to calculate the number of the name, uh, it, it's, we don't know how that happened. We don't, it's lost to the modern reader. But the important point is, we see in our world today, the stage is clearly being set for the Antichrist. That's unmistakable from this passage. He's going to come to a people who are enthusiastically going to welcome him. And that dampens my spirit. It just grieves me to think that the world is getting so corrupt that what they're really longing for is somebody who is so anti-God, so anti-Christ, that they can rally behind him and finally have somebody to lead them to take over this world. There's nothing subtle about the Antichrist or his appearance. The future world we have seen is shocking to any decent person, but it's coming. A wicked world following a wicked ruler, empowered by the prince of all wickedness, Satan himself, and the world is giddy with delight when this happens. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be a part of that world. But it's coming. And some people are looking forward to it. How demented can we possibly be? This is the future. My hope is in Christ. And by the way, I'm going to go back to that rhetorical question, the 
rhetorical questions that these followers of Antichrist, as they worshiped him, and they rang out, who is like the beast? Who could make war with him? I, I want to come back. And I want to say, oh, no, you don't understand. Who is like the Lord? Who can prevail against him? And like it says from the psalm, who is like the Lord? He is high above all nations, and his glory is above the heavens. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Who can wage war against the beast? My question is, who can wage war against God and win? My God can wage war against the beast, and he will win. He will prevail. I've got an answer to your question. Would you bow your heads?